Well, good morning, ZF family. Um, I'm still so grateful that we can gather together at the same time, and I'm looking forward to beginning the process of regathering in the same place in a couple weeks. And I know that you're excited about that as well. Uh, before we move into the sermon this morning, I wanted to acknowledge and lament together um, about some deep concerns we have right now in our nation. So Edgar just led us in prayer, and he included this in his prayer um, that we just prayed together. I know many of you have um, heard about uh, the tragic death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. And so I want to encourage us to lament. Um, we lament this and grieve this because uh, this was the loss of George, who is made in God's image. Uh, and every human life is sacred. And we feel uh, this deep concern in learning about the way he died because we, we feel the injustice of this. We feel the violation of the sacredness of human life. And so we lament this. We weep with those who are grieving, who knew him personally. We weep with those who are deeply concerned and grieving about how this brings to mind so many other problems we have in our nation and that many have experienced personally, uh, feeling like justice is not done to them, feeling uh, as, this, as this calls to mind racial divides and discrimination and injustices um, in our time as well. So we lament, we also pray, and I encourage you to pray together, continue to pray together about this. We pray for God's justice to be done in this situation and many like it in our nation. We pray uh, for healing to come to our nation. We pray for comfort for those who are grieving um, and even scared. And this is also a time to love. So as Christians, we, we recognize in the Bible from beginning to end, God himself is about unifying people against all divides, um, across all divides, age, ethnicity, gender, bringing them together to have joyful fellowship with one another, deep trust in one another. And God's beginning to do this through the Lord Jesus. We see this happening in the New Testament and we are part of this movement of God's grace that brings people together. So we wanna love one another. We want to learn from each other across these divides. We wanna listen to one another. We want to care about laws and accountability and justice. And we're called to speak out when we see injustice and see racism in all sorts of situations that we see today. Um, so that's my encouragement to us. Let's lament, let's pray, and let's love one another. So even with that, let's pray for our time together under God's word. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And we are grieved at the demonstration of our own sin that we see in our own hearts and lives and we see put before us on TV, we see all over the globe. And so we pray that you would bring your kingdom, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that you would take care of all the needs we have in giving us our daily bread. We pray that you would forgive us all of our sins and we pray that you would keep us from temptation. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've just finished our series, uh, Reintroducing Jesus. 
And we've done this from the Gospel of John. That was about getting to know the real Jesus. And now we're beginning a new sermon series that takes us the next, to the next step, which is learning to be transformed, really experiencing the transformation that comes from knowing this real Jesus. He starts changing us to become like him from the inside out by his spirit. So we're calling this new series, Gospel Freedom and the Fruit of the Spirit. And this is rooted in Galatians, so please do turn there with me in your Bible. So in Galatians chapter 5, that's where we'll be, uh, we learn about how God liberates us to live a whole new kind of life. He gives us a new freedom and changes how we think, how we feel, how we live. And after explaining this new gospel freedom through chapter 5, the Apostle Paul introduces an image to speak about what this transformation now will look like. And he uses this image of fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. So we're to be like trees that sink their roots down deep in this freedom, this liberation that we have in the gospel in Jesus. And as we do this, we start bearing fruit. And the fruit looks a whole lot like Jesus. It's these nine different characteristics of Jesus that the Spirit produces in us to make us like Jesus. So here's the plan for the series. We'll take three weeks to walk through chapter five um, to understand this gospel freedom and how it does transform us. And then uh, the subsequent weeks, we'll take one fruit each week in. And so here's what I'd love for us to do as a church family through these weeks. Let's memorize the fruit of the Spirit together. I don't think it's a big challenge, but this is, uh, this would be great to do. So Galatians 5 verses 22 to 23, and it says this, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And one of the goals of memorizing this together is that we would pray for the Lord to produce this fruit in our lives and the lives of our church family and beyond. Uh, this is how a man named John Stott prayed every day. Uh, I wonder if you know that name. He was one of the great Christian uh, pastors and leaders of the last century. Uh, he passed away several, member, or several years ago. I remember uh, being able to listen to him preach in a country church in Illinois around 2004. I was so grateful that I got to do that. Listen to his daily prayer. He prayed this every morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that I may live this day in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So let's, let's join that prayer and pray for one another regularly. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit really gives us a composite picture of the beauty of Jesus' character. And uh, it's what true spiritual growth is really all about, becoming like Jesus, becoming who we were always meant to be. So before we get into the fruit, we do need to spend these three weeks on the soil of gospel freedom in Galatians 5. And here's why, because if you, do, if you get the soil wrong, the fruit will not be produced. Galatians 5 shows us the two most uh, important errors to be aware of uh, when thinking about the Christian life. And then the Apostle Paul gives us a third way of gospel freedom and the fruit of the Spirit. So the first way 
that's an error is called, we could call legalism or moral rigor, religious moralism. We try to improve ourselves in our own strength. The second error is what we can call license. It's the opposite of moralism. Uh, to those on this end of the spectrum, they see the problems of legalism and then react and go the other way completely and thinking that God's grace means you don't need to obey at all. There's no change that happens, no change expected, no change to try to pursue at all. But Paul gives us the third way and it's not kind of situated somewhere in the middle of the spectrum between moralism and license. Neither is it some kind of balancing of both of them as if we just talk about grace sometimes and then obedience sometimes and we've got to get the proportion right. Uh, no, this is a third way altogether. And it's uh, the way of the gospel freedom and the fruit of the spirit. It's how God himself by his spirit produces in us this fruit of changed lives, of a changed life. And he does it out of uh, the liberation that we experience from his grace and by the power of the spirit. So in Galatians 5, Paul is introducing gospel freedom and he's contrasting it with these two errors. So if you just kind of scan chapter 5 and look down there with me, in verses 1 through 12, he's contrasting it with legalism. In verses 13 to 15, he contrasts it with license. And then in verses 16 to 25, he unfolds this third way even more clearly. So we'll take one of, the, one of them at a time these next three weeks before we look at the fruit of the Spirit more closely. So this morning, gospel freedom versus moralism or legalism, religious moralism. So let's read chapter 5, the first six verses right now. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So as we think about legalism, moralism here, uh, we have to ask three questions that Paul answers here. What is it? Why is it so dangerous? And how do we avoid it? So first, what is it? What is legalism here? Well, the image Paul uses to describe it is this image of a yoke of slavery. Uh, this is really the contrast between the true Christian life and the life of legalism. It's a contrast between freedom, gospel freedom, and slavery. Verse 1 summarizes the heart of the letter of Galatians. He says this, For freedom, Christ has set us free. So when you become a Christian, or when you became a Christian, if you become one, you step into freedom. The prison doors open wide, and you get to step out into the sunshine of God's grace. And this is a freedom we have in being completely forgiven through Jesus. Uh, he came and he lived the perfect life we have failed to live. And he did that to qualify him to be a sacrifice for our sins, to die the guilty death we deserve to die, but don't want to die. And then he rose from the dead and welcomes us on terms of grace. Uh, we don't do anything to earn this. 
Our bad works don't disqualify us from his grace. In fact, acknowledging that we fail is what qualifies us. Uh, and, and that's what we bring our need. And, we, and then we then receive this freedom from condemnation, freedom from the fear of judgment, freedom to enjoy God in life as it was meant to be. Liberation. But here's the problem. These Christians in this city of Galatia, it's the area of Galatia here, they're tempted to start basing their relationship uh, with God on their performance. They're tempted to no longer enjoy this freedom, but to be enslaved by rule keeping. Now, this is our temptation as well. Jesus sets us free and very often we don't enjoy the freedom he gives us. It's as if we're, we're kind of in prison. Jesus flings the doors wide open and we just sit there. Or we walk halfway to the door. Or we leave, but then we return back to this prison cell. And this is why Paul says in verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ set you free. I mean, that sounds obvious, right? Well, if he set us free, of course it's for freedom. But, but we need to remember this. We need to hear this. Because it may sound obvious at one level, but functionally from a moment by moment, day by day experience, we're living as though he set us free for something other than freedom. We say, yeah, he set us free, but we're not living in the freedom that he gives us. And so that's why he says in verse one next, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So what is the slavery that he set them free from? And, and what's the slavery that they're tempted to enter into? Well, the way Paul put it in verse one here is helpful. So listen, listen again to the way he said this. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. There's more than one yoke of slavery in view here. There were actually two kinds of slavery in view, but they were both essentially sharing the same root. They're both yokes of slavery. This is really important. So just let's track together here. First, there's a Jewish works-based mindset that was a form of slavery at this time as well. And that's clearly the temptation that these people are facing and that Paul's talking about here. He says next in verse two, that some Jewish believers, or this is really the context of Galatians, but we see this in verse two, that some Jewish believers or professing believers in Jesus were trying to get the Galatian Christians to become circumcised. And the reason was because circumcision was a way that you signal you're a, a true faithful Jew. It's the sign of the covenant. You're, you're entering into the covenant with God's people. And so you're circumcised. So they would say, yes, you believe in Jesus. Yes, trusting Jesus is important, but you also need to be circumcised and start keeping the Old Testament law. And Paul's saying to them, don't do this. It is a yoke of slavery. You do not need to become Jewish to become Christians and to, or to live as Christians. Uh, you have freedom in Christ, so don't start thinking. You need to embrace the whole Old Testament law and live according to that. Christ obeyed perfectly for you. You receive his record and you trust him and you live in your freedom. So that's one slavery that was in view. But there's another one that's in view here as well. Look at the way that Paul put it again in verse 1. He said, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That word again is really significant. Think about it. He's saying that they shouldn't go back to a former yoke of slavery. But what was their yoke of slavery? It wasn't 
works-based religion uh, or the Jewish works-based religion in particular. These were pagan Gentiles before they became Christians. And we know this because Paul is saying to them, don't submit to circumcision. Don't get circumcised as though you need to. Now, if you're familiar with this practice at all, you know that that can only happen once, right? So if they were Jewish in their background, they would have already been circumcised. So do you see what this means? It means that their pagan, non-Jewish, non-Bible-believing background was also a form of slavery. It was a yoke of slavery. Paul's saying, do not again receive this yoke of slavery. And so if they embraced the Jewish works mindset, that yoke of slavery, it would be again entering into a form of slavery. Not the same one exactly that they came out of, but one that shares the same root. They'd be going back to slavery again, just in different form. Okay, now here's why this is so important for us to see. Because this shows us that this is so relevant to every single person everywhere through all history. Paul is not just talking about an ancient Jewish tendency, uh, nor is he addressing merely an issue that first century pagan Christians in the Roman world were wrestling with. He's getting at a deep issue that's common to humanity. And it's this, we are addicted to trying to perform and measure up. Uh, everyone is a slave to something, whether Jewish or Gentile, whether religious or irreligious, everyone carries some kind of yoke of slavery. Everyone is burdened by trying to measure up to some kind of standard. The issue is what's the standard? And there's various religions and irreligious groups and individual um, mindsets that set the standards, but the, the issue is the same. We're trying to measure up to meet some bar to feel justified, righteous, okay, accepted, uh, arrived. Um, everyone is burdened by some standard, some set of rules, some idol, and everyone fails to measure up. And therefore, we feel enslaved. And we see the results everywhere in our own culture of this dynamic, right? We, we're living with this deep anxiety of failing to measure up. We are enslaved to trying to prove ourselves perhaps to a parent or a father who we could never please. Uh, we try to gain acceptance by those who we think are cooler than we are in our grade, um, we're, we're trying to measure up and gain some kind of approval based upon our performance. And so here are two insights from this for us. First, first insight is this. To become a Christian is to be set free from this burden of legalism in whatever form we experienced it. Uh, Christian, the Christian life is not moralism. It is freedom from moralism. It is freedom from the need to prove ourselves to God, to prove ourselves to ourselves, to prove ourselves to anyone else, because we receive acceptance through Jesus on terms of grace. Jesus has already measured up for us. He died for our failure to measure up, and he invites us to 
acknowledge this and to receive his grace. His record becomes ours and there's nothing else we need to do to find our deepest acceptance. So if you're not yet a Christian, this is the greatest news in the universe. This is the liberation that your maker has provided for you after you and I have already blown it. Uh, he provides this. He says, because Jesus died, that death can count for you and you can have full acceptance. And here's the second insight. And the second insight is Paul's main point here. It's this, once we embrace this freedom, this liberation from the gospel, this good news, we are still tempted to go right back to another form of slavery. Maybe not the exact form we came from, but some form. And in fact, some people will even take Christianity and turn it into a yoke of slavery. That's essentially what these people were doing here. Those people who were going to the gent the these Galatian Christians saying they needed to be circumcised were not saying, you don't need Jesus. They were affirming belief in Jesus. They were just saying, and you need to do these things as well. You need to do these things to be a real Christian. So here's the issue. Uh, we, once we ex experience the liberating freedom in Jesus, we are tempted to go right back to a performance treadmill because something, our heart's orientation, it takes time to adjust to the freedom that we have in Jesus. We are forgiven, but we don't feel forgiven all the time. We say we have no condemnation, but then we beat ourselves up and we say, I could never forgive myself. We say that God loves us, but we fear that he doesn't like us. We think we're under God's blessing, but then when we have a bad day, we think that the, the hammers fall and he's punishing us. We do this when a church has grace in its doctrinal statement, but then the whole atmosphere is law in its relationships, people walking on eggshells. We do this when we say we love the gospel, but what really gets us passionate is all of our kind of secondary or preferences, secondary level issues or preferences that we, we really exalt and then in such a way where we expect people to share the level of importance that we, we experience with these things. Uh, some do this when they say, you receive eternal life by grace, but then they make the whole Christian life about performing to measure up for rewards or something. They say, you need to get this second blessing. You need to get this overcoming Christian life. You need to get this victorious Christian life. And you get this by trying really hard to do this set of, these, this set of rules. Some do this by offering their own form of fundamentalism. They take their preferences and make them the main things. And the result is that people who at one time began to experience the liberation of the gospel when they first became Christians, they then now are going to still live with all their anxieties of failing to measure up, maybe even work. They're always wondering if they can be enough. And then we start trying to hide our failing, uh, especially when we are making mistakes. We don't want people to know. We want to cover them up or we lie about them or we start wearing masks around each other. Um, you know, we're going to start regathering in a couple weeks and we believe that we should all wear masks for the time being. And someone said on Twitter uh, this statement. They said something like, I don't know why you're all complaining about wearing masks at church. You were wearing them before this anyway. 
That resonates with us, doesn't it? Uh, and it's because of what Paul's saying here. We are all enslaved to some system of performance and we build that into our relationships and our communities and we try to prove ourselves to God and to ourselves and to others. And if we our sense of self-worth is completely ruined and to minimize the damage that we feel, we try to wear masks to cover ourselves up. And for the Galatian Christians, this made them open to this kind of false teaching these kinds of additions, this kind of moralism, because it could be a way for them to meet this need, to feel like they, they could arrive and be accepted on, based on performance. It sounded so plausible. Sure, you can keep believing in Jesus. Uh, we're not saying leave Christianity. We're just saying, add this. You need to, we're quoting the Bible, circumcision. God said to do it in the Old Testament. I mean, these are biblical things, right? And Paul says, no way. That's going right back into slavery. So that's what legalism is. It's a form of slavery to measuring up. Now, second, why is it so dangerous? Paul gives us three reasons in verses two to four here. First, uh, if you do this, you won't have Jesus. Verse two, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, this is amazing. They were thinking, yes, we believe in Jesus. We also need to do these particular works right there. And Paul says, if you add anything to Jesus, you lose Jesus. If you think that Jesus will take 99% of what you need for your acceptance, and then you need to contribute the 1%, you do not get Jesus for the 99. Um, you lose him. Jesus will be all your righteousness or he will be none of it. He will save you completely or he will save you not at all. Salvation is either by grace or it is by works. But there's no way to mix them together in the end. To mix works into grace makes it non-grace. So if you want Jesus' liberating, freeing salvation, then you have to admit that you do not contribute anything to that salvation. You didn't, you don't, and you won't. Here's a second reason why this is so dangerous. Because you will be left with an impossible standard to meet. Verse three, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So you, you can't pick and choose the parts that you want to obey. To say that obedience to God's law is necessary for salvation in any amount means you're, you're embracing the whole package. You're saying obedience to God all of it is necessary. Once you enter into the category of salvation by works, you can't pick and choose. And this is true of all self-salvation projects. This is why moralistic religion is motivated by fear. We're always fearing that we won't measure up, that we won't arrive. We fear that we're not doing enough. So we either live in this constant despair and fear of not measuring up, or we start to lower the standards, which is what many of the Pharisees in the first century did, and Jesus called them on it. They were starting to lower the standards to something manageable, but that wasn't actually God's law either. They made it into something they could do, which they, they were able to pull off their kind of manageable amount, but they weren't obeying God's law. So we'll do that and we'll have this false sense of pride about managing this, and we'll be left in the end without real obedience anyways. So the third danger here, legalism is dangerous because you separate yourself from the, this whole sphere of grace, from Christ and grace. Verse four, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, is this saying that you can lose your salvation? I don't think so. 
Uh, That's not the teaching of the New Testament. And that's not the question that Paul's addressing here. This is simply saying what is always true. If you reject Jesus, you do not get Jesus. If you say the cross is not enough for my salvation, then you do not get the cross for your salvation. If you say, I'm going to rely on my own works in any measure for my salvation, then you are not relying on Jesus alone. So this danger really serves to remind us of the good news, the goodness of the good news. Jesus gives us a full salvation. When he said on the cross, it is finished. That means there is nothing left for us to do. We receive. When Paul says that Jesus saves even the chief of sinners, he means it. So our final question then is how do we avoid this danger? How do we avoid this freedom killing moralism? Well, we trust with eager hope and we reject any form of mere moral reformation as worthless. Verse five, for through the spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. You cannot do that if you are relying on your own moral fortitude and goodness. You do not look to the coming judgment with eagerness and hope. And the hope here, by the way, is not an uncertain hope or a wish. Hope in this context throughout the Bible is this firm confidence and expectation. You do not have that kind of eagerness and hope. Instead, you will be looking to that with fear and uncertainty. But Paul says that we can have confidence that we will be accepted as righteous, declared righteous on that last day because of Jesus. And so by faith, reliance not on ourselves, but on Jesus, we eagerly await that day. We anticipate it. Maybe you have never yet trusted in Christ this way, that you could have such an eagerness, not just confidence, but eagerness for that day of standing before God in the judgment, knowing that you will receive the verdict of righteousness because of Jesus. If you have never trusted in Christ for that, you can do so right now because you don't need to wait until you muster up enough moral resolve. You don't need to wait until you've proven yourself right now with your full acknowledgement that you do not deserve it. That is what you need in order to receive it. Uh, You just come to him with your need. You turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus and you receive this as a gift. In fact, that coming verdict of righteousness is already announced over you now. You are not guilty, justified, no condemnation, declared righteous in Christ. And then verse six, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. What's he saying? As far as our acceptance before the Lord goes, uh, religion and irreligion count for nothing. Being a Jew or Gentile counts for nothing. Obeying a thousand commands or no commands counts for nothing. Just faith working through love. Faith working through love. We'll consider that next week because faith resting in God's acceptance, not based upon your performance. That is the new power, the, the energizing power by the spirit that produces a life of love. It actually is what we need to begin getting busy doing good works. 
acknowledging that we don't do them for our performance, acknowledging that we're accepted apart from works is what we need to, to embrace in our hearts in order to free us to begin doing good works, not out of fear, not out of uncertainty, but out of a great confidence and joy in Jesus. That's why he began the way he did, stand firm in your freedom. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. So let's enjoy this grace together and let's not let anyone take it away. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you boldly, confidently, and humbly in the name of Jesus. And we do this in his name because we know that he alone is our hope. He is our righteousness and therefore he is our joy. We thank you for giving us this freedom in which we stand and we pray that we would live in light of this for our joy and for your glory. And we pray that we would welcome in more and more people, neighbors and friends, into this joy in which, that we're experiencing from knowing you and being liberated. In Jesus' name, amen.